This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I am your host, Sam Caston-Smith, and joining me today is Will Bushman. Do you always start with welcome, folks? I think I do. Okay. I learned it from Mark. It's totally ripped off. So. That's fine. It's a good one. Welcome, welcome, folks, to another... I, I, how else would you start it? I don't know. Give I, me, give I just me. think folks is a funny... Welcome, everyone. Yeah, I don't know how. Now that you, <laughs> now that you point that out, it's different. Oh. One job. Well, I had, well, you asked me to do a sound check, so I turned the volume back on, and it haunted us. We took last week off, as you can tell. <laughs> yeah, last week I actually we were, I was supposed to originally supposed to be on a tour of Greece to different biblical sites and teaching and doing all kinds of fun stuff like that. But because of my spinal issues that I've mentioned a few episodes back, uh, was unable to go because we the pain and everything else was totally unpredictable. But then the pain went away. I think my epidural had a second wind or something because I've been relatively pain-free recently. So on a last-minute plan with two days before going into this break, because we had child care already taken care of, grandparents lined up to watch my four kids, we were like, it would be a shame to just sit home and stare at a wall because, God forbid, we ever are bored or <laughs> quiet. So Laura and I decided last minute to put together a trip to go out west, and so we went out west and saw Yellowstone and did kind of a driving tour, nothing too you know, taxing on the body or anything, but we went to Yellowstone and Grand Tetons and just got a sense of God's creation and how small we were. It was awesome, just good alone time um, with her with, with no yapping and demands. That's and different. Constant guys, yeah. needs, yeah, yeah. So. That's been the first and the longest trip we've ever had together that was like way, way far away from our kids. And our oldest is 15, so it was really nice. Yeah, and we, have, we had no idea where you were because we struggled geographically as South Floridians. So <laughs> Where's the when people told me you were gone, yeah, we heard all the states. Like it was just, <laughs> we're like Montana, Wyoming, Utah, maybe went to all of those, but there's definitely a an unknown nature to what was happening. Yeah, we were in Utah, Wyoming, and Idaho. Okay, that so was, we were close. That was our travels all through there. Really beautiful. Still snow-capped, which blew me away. Still snow on the ground in a lot of the places up there. And the lake that we went to was frozen over three weeks ago, which hmm. it's hotter than, as my dad says, Billy Blue Blazes down here. I don't know where that comes from, but it's yeah, another it's, one of my dad things. Hopefully it's not bad. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. Hopefully no one's going to write yeah, in. And everyone say. says hot as they're like, wait, where's he going with this? This can't go anywhere good. But Billy Blue Blazes. Anyway, and it was snow on the ground. So it was it was pretty incredible. And when you're there and you're looking at the Grand Tetons, and I think they're 13,000-something feet tall mountains, so a couple miles, they're just stunning to look at. And you get a real sense of, of God's majesty when you're looking at stuff like that and your own smallness because the closer you get to it, it's just like, good grief, we're small. Yeah, it's good to get out of sea level sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Our only our only mountain here, we were telling people, our only mountain is Mount Trashmore <laughs> off Sample Road. They're there like everybody we talk to is like, that's really sad. <laughs> like, that's terrible. You poor thing. 
Welcome to South Florida. Yeah, they probably, when you say Florida, good images don't come to Midwesterners' mind. Yeah, well, honestly, they they think in terms of, like, awe of the ocean. Like, to stand mm, on the true. beach and to look at the ocean. Like, they, they have the same sense of awe looking at the size and scope of the ocean. Yeah, I guess that's why they come here. We go there. That's yeah. what makes tourism worthwhile. So I live in South Florida. I never go to the beach. I hate the beach. <laughs> you know, <laughs> sand and, you know, that kind of stickiness to it. And anyway... So we're picking up today where we left off with Joseph, and uh, today gets into some like good news. This is this is the chapter where we get to see the restoration. We get to see kind of all of the background of God's sovereignty and allowing all the ugliness and injustices and all that stuff that happened to Joseph and and to Jacob and all the mess that were brought about by his brothers. All of that kind of comes into this beautiful climax where it's all makes sense of what God has been doing. So I'm only going to summarize the more recent stuff. So remember, Jacob is in the middle of this famine, and he looks at his sons, and he says, you need to go down to Egypt to find us grain. And the sons go down to Egypt, and you remember Joseph, who's been waiting for them, sees them coming, and he hatches this elaborate plan to make the brothers walk through some of the stuff that he went through. So what does he do? He's, he knows that they're coming on a long distance to, to, to get grain, and then he accuses them of being spies, which is what they thought of him. He throws them into a pit, which is what they did to him, and then he sends them home and says, if you come back here without your younger brother Benjamin, because he wanted to know if he was alive, then I'm going to put you all to death. He puts Simeon into a prison, and Simeon literally <laughs> languishes in a prison for a year while they go home and eat all the grain because Jacob does not trust his sons and will not give Benjamin to go back to Egypt. He just doesn't want to lose Benjamin. Benjamin is his prize. So a year goes by, they eat up all their grain, and now they're at an, at an impasse. The brothers are like, we cannot go back to Egypt without Benjamin. He said that, that he will kill us if we do. You need to give us Benjamin. Jacob relents, so they all go down, Benjamin and the nine other brothers. And so they get there and Joseph throws this elaborate feast and he sits them according to their age and he gives Benjamin, you know, bigger portions and everything else. And then he's like, you know, yeah, all right, you can go home. Here's Simeon, you know, everything's good. And on their way out of town, Joseph instructs his servants to put the silver cup, his own silver cup in Benjamin's sack and then he says, all right, go chase them down and make the accusation. They're like, we don't have your cup. But then they find the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. And this is really bad news because the brothers had just said, if you find it in one of our sacks, you can put that brother to death and the rest of us will be your slaves. Mm. And the attendant's like, you don't need to do that. You don't need to be the slaves. But I am taking Benjamin. And crazy, these same brothers that sold out Joseph actually chase Benjamin back to the palace they go and intercede, and chapter 44 ends with Judah standing before Joseph saying, I cannot handle seeing the level of grief my father has suffered with Joseph, him going through that again with Benjamin. So I made a promise to him that I would secure his life with my own, and so please let him go. I will be your slave. I'll remain behind in Egypt. Just please let Benjamin go back to my father. And that's where chapter 44 ends. We pick up chapter 45, and it says, verse 1, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. 
He cried. Make everyone go out from me, he said. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brother. So this is the first time that he's dropping this bombshell that not only is he still alive, but he's the guy that has been tinkering with their lives for the last 12 to 13 months. And he's hit his emotions pretty well because over the course of the story, we've seen him excuse himself, cry, and come mm-hmm. back. So this is the first yeah. time when he's finally you know, pulling back the curtain a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And we've been told he goes out, he cries, he washes his face and goes back in. But this time there's no controlling it. Like he just heard the speech that he has been wanting to hear from the beginning. And you remember from our previous conversations, like what Joseph did not want is for them to see him in a position of power and to be like, oh, we fear you, so we'll do whatever you say. He wanted them to wrestle with God, to come to a sense where they had a deep conviction on their own and to see their character change without it coming by fear. And he's just seen that when when Judah says, I'll do the right thing at great personal cost to myself. I'll lay myself down for my brother. And he gets to hear how much his loss was traumatizing to his dad. And it's just too much for him to bear. And it says in verse 2, he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. So they're outside the room, and he's just wailing, wailing, weeping so loud. And all the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. And he wants to know this. Is my father still alive? Which he's already asked before. But he, he wants to know, is my father still alive? A year later. And his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. How are you feeling about that? That's understandable. Like, that's the kind of a, a small <laughs> even description of it. They're totally shocked. Because in their minds, their brother had been dead. Like, I mean, they, they'd said that before. You know, of course, he's a slave. You know, he would have to be 37. The average slave dies in their teens down here. Of course, he's no longer alive. And yet here he is in power, and probably they're starting to think, oh my gosh, what is he going to do with us? Now it makes sense why he threw us in a dungeon and why he singled us out when we arrived and why he wanted to see Benjamin. And all of these thoughts have to be running through their mind and remembering that 20 years ago, 21 years ago, this is the brother that was down in the well screaming and crying and begging and pleading for deliverance and for for salvation and for them to show mercy, and they showed absolutely none. They never pursued him. And so in all of their minds, what are they thinking? He's going to do the same thing to us. We deserve it. Like, if, if I was in his shoes, what what would I receive? You know, what would I, what would I dole out as a punishment? And so they know that they deserve absolute wrath. And they say nothing. And then what part of the reasons why they can't answer him is they have no answer. <laughs> you know, like, what do you say? Oh, hey, Joseph, you know, good to yeah, see you again. yeah, good to see you. You know, yeah, dad's doing fine. They, they have no answer because they have no answer for the wickedness. And, you know, there's, there's been a lot of commentaries that write about this and, and they might stretch it to be allegorical because there's so much about the Joseph story that reminds you of Jesus. And we've walked through this. You know, he's the father's favored son. And, you know, he's he has his coat stripped away from him and he's falsely accused. And he's, you know, he's separated from the father and he's put between the two criminals and one's redeemed. He is 
thrown down into a pit. He goes down to Egypt, the land of death, but he's going to be restored to the right hand of Pharaoh where he uses his authority to provide life-giving grain to all of his people, and he's going to prepare places for them. Like all of this is just such a perfect echo of Jesus. And so now if you extend that metaphor, because here you have your brother who you thought was dead, who's now standing with all authority and power at the right hand of Pharaoh, and he's alive, right? That's that's another one of these things where it fits like a glove. He's no longer dead. He is reigning alive, and now you are standing before him guilty of all that he suffered. Your guilt is his suffering, and they can't speak. There's no defense. And there's a very real reality that someday, like, all of us are going to stand before our creator, right? And all of us are going to have to give an answer for the lives we've lived. All of us are going to have to give an answer for the sins we've committed. And it's instructive here that they can't speak. Because I think on that day, when confronted by sin, if, if we are trying to atone for our own sin or we're trying to prove our own goodness, when, when, the, when the records of our lives are unfurled in front of us and God says, look at all of the evil that you've done that resulted in the marring of my world, that made this world so dark and so hard, I think for those that are outside of his grace and mercy, you, you won't be able to speak. You will be dead to rights, looking at all of your heart and your selfishness and your sinfulness and your evil, and you're going to be standing before a creator who's demanding an account of you, and you will be absolutely tongue-tied, silent. No answer. No answer. But for the people that have placed their faith in Christ, who have, like Judah, shown that willingness to die to themselves, who have who've put their hope into something greater, imagine this experience, right? It says, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. Uh, <laughs> wow, come near to me, please. I mean, you're wondering, like, for what reason? Are, are you going to give us a hug or, or are you going to stab us? Yeah, like, those are two different options to come near to someone. Yeah, like, ooh, it would be scary to draw near to, to a figure with that much power that you have wronged so badly, and we don't fear God as we ought a lot of times, but when the God of the universe says, draw near to me, come boldly before the throne, do you, do you fear him? What, what's your reaction? Do you, do you want to run to him for a hug, or do you, when you recognize who you are, do you go, oof, you got, you got a good reason to punch me right in the face? <laughs> I think my personality goes more towards that. Which one? Like God being angry with me. Okay. How I come? Mean, I, don't, I don't know. I think just being hard on myself, I put that on God as well. Okay. But it says they came near. Yeah. You know, they're kind of without option, yeah. you know, at this That's point. That's a command. Because at this point, like, you know, the good thing is we get to see the character of who Jesus is. Hmm. You know, and, and the let's say the analogy here, they don't know where Joseph is. Where Joseph has landed after 20-plus years of suffering at their expense Where's his heart? But he says, you know, come near, and they come near to him. And we as the readers have heard more of what Joseph is thinking than they do. Like, Completely. So we're, at this point, we're ahead of the game than they are, so they're just they're kind of just getting punched in the face with this, and we're like, oh, we know. 
Yeah, we've been tracking. He's okay with you, so don't be afraid. But but he, they should be. But they've been they've been living twelve to thirteen months in absolute like something's going on. God yeah. is after us. All these conditions, you know, maybe His judgment is falling on us, and it's all because of this Egyptian official that we ran into. And now you find out it's Joseph, and you know this is the father's favorite, and you know God's blessing is probably going to this guy. And then he says to them, I am your brother, Joseph. You know, he doesn't use his Egyptian name. You know, he reverts right back to his, his given name. I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And if he stopped there, you know, death, right? But, but that's the reality. Like, you, you deserve desperate punishment. You sold me into the land of death. You, you treated me with utter contempt like my life was utterly worthless and you you know like I, I think both of us would be waiting for that next sentence and therefore with the full wrath and power of the Egyptian government I am going to come down on you I'd just be waiting for like an arrow to hit me like him <laughs> not say anything just like he's spoken to them before and they know yeah, but but then you see his character listen to what he says he says and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God has sent me before you to preserve life. And then you're like, what? Imagine how many days was he a slave? How many days was he in prison? How many, how many days did he suffer through tears and everything else? And listen to what he says. He's more concerned. He's not waiting for the apology. He's not saying, okay, what do you have to say for yourselves before they can even get a word out? Because remember, they still haven't even spoken. Their tongues are tied. And he says, I don't want you to beat yourself up. Whoa. Whoa. I don't, I don't want you to be distressed, and I don't want you to be angry with yourselves. I don't want your guilt to torment you anymore because God sent me to go through all of this before you to preserve life. In other words, like what I did ultimately was for you and I'm okay with it. Even though you, (laughs) you did wrong. You did something that was wildly evil. Let it go because God's used it for something beautiful. And that like the reality is that someday we're going to be face to face with God's favored son. And the reality is we put him on the cross. Hmm. Like we did far worse than Joseph's brothers ever did. Do you believe that? Like, because there's a great saying that says you cannot see the cross as something done for you until you see the cross as something done by you. Mm. We are the brothers who put the father's favored son into the land of death. And when we stand before God, when we stand before that firstborn son who reigns at the right hand with all power and authority, he's going to look at us and say, you know, what first thing he does, I love this. Wipe away every tear. Mm. So his first concern is for us. Don't don't beat yourself up. Don't walk around with guilt. Don't walk around with the shame. Like, that's what I died for. God sent me on the mission to suffer, to preserve your life. Let go of everything that's been haunting you for the last 21 years. Just mind-boggling that he's this selfless, and how he views his brothers who put him through so much. Yeah, it's a real master class on having the Spirit of God in you in regards to forgiveness because, again, 
they didn't ask for it yet. They didn't do anything. But Joseph has already forgiven them, and he's done that personally before they even mm-hmm. were a part of the plan, really. Mm-hmm. And even, like, he does it so well because he doesn't hold back any punches. Like, he doesn't wipe what they did under the rug. Right. You know, he's not like, hey, it's okay, guys. I guess we're all fine because good came from it. No, it's like a really, like, really sound, like, He's loving, but then he's also like, no, you guys did real wrong to me. Yeah. And I forgive you for that. And this is why, because there's purpose in all of this, and I can see far greater things than you know. So it is a fascinating thing Mm -hmm. to think about him going on that journey just in his own soul, I bet, for all those years. You bring up a great point because so many times when we look at forgiveness, we want to just say, hey, we're good. We're good. You good? I'm good. All right, let's just move on and and you never get to it. But he starts with them. I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into into Egypt, right? And you're like, "Uh uh-oh. Like, it brings it out. Like, this cost me a lot. Like, it hurt me greatly. And yet I've reached it because forgiveness is, is your willingness to bear the cost of someone else's mistake. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. They do something wrong, and you're not demanding to exact vengeance on them. You you want them well. You pay the cost for their mistake personally, and it's hard. But that's still different than reconciliation, right? Because yeah. you can you can forgive somebody without being reconciled and you know having your relationship restored perfectly, right? Because if they're still if they're unwilling, if they're still wicked, Joseph under under the gospel would still have an obligation to forgive his brothers. He does not have an obligation to be, you know, reconciled and restored in relationship. And that, by the way, is the purpose of the whole previous 13 months is he's trying to gain an understanding of where they're at. You know, the goal of every person of God should be, you have an obligation to forgiveness. You should have a heart that yearns and seriously seeks after reconciliation and restoration. But you're only obligated in so far as much as you have the ability to make it happen. Mm. If the other person is still wicked and they're going to walk all over you like a doormat, use wisdom. You're not required by the gospel to be a doormat. You are required to forgive. And that's a it's a tricky distinction that a lot of people get caught up on. But he he names their sin, right? He says, for the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. So (laughs) news to them. Yeah. You still got a long way to go, which then makes them, you know, if, if he's right, which I'm imagining, you know, they see the spirit of God in him. He's got authority. They believe what he says. And he says, you've got five more years of famine and your only hope of life is me. Your, your only hope of survival The only place you know where there is grain in this part of the world is right here, and you got five more years where you're absolutely going to lean on me and then listen to what he says. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. Can you just imagine the freedom and that, like, the how dumbfounded the brothers must be? Like, wait a minute. My wickedness, the evil that I've been wrestling with for the last 21 plus years, God used that to save me? Like that's so counterintuitive. It's almost, it almost feels blasphemous to say 
that God is so big that he can use our evils to save us. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, it is really hard to wrap your mind around. It, it feels wrong. Yeah, it feels like it shouldn't be able to do that. Yeah, God should only use righteousness. But, I mean, get that. If God only used righteous people to save people, <laughs> <laughs> we're out. We're out, right? And so it's like, in spite of ourselves, God uses the darkness to make the brilliance of the light all the greater, right? Mm-hmm. So he uses their wickedness, almost like a jujitsu move where he uses the weight of their wickedness to th- overtake them and throw the wickedness on its back and to bring about life. And so to hear that, like, wait a minute, you, God was going behind the scenes, weaving this story together for my own salvation. And Joseph, this is the part that's even more amazing is Joseph is like, I'm okay with my suffering. I don't like it. It was unjust, you know, like it's gross. I don't wish it on anybody, but I believe that God ordained this and allowed my suffering to bring about your salvation, and I'm good with it. What does that sound like? That's that's not only Christ, but that's the calling of the church. Like, I am willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. That's the Beatitudes. And here you have Joseph who's looking back at a lot of misery and saying, yeah, but God was using it. I'm okay with it. <laughs> That's stunning. So then listen, in verse 8, listen to what he says. Because this, I mean, Jesus kind of says something very similar to this. Joseph says, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. And so he, I mean, he's going to go on with the promises of what is being offered to Jacob there, but I want you to go back to what he said right out of the gates. It was not you who sent me here, but God. And that sounds blasphemous, right? God, God, doesn't, God doesn't allow for bad things. Well, of course he does. In the sovereign beauty, he orchestrates every detail of the universe to ultimately come to his glory and his good, even when it doesn't make sense to us. Mm. You remember what, similarly, do you remember when when Pilate is interrogating Jesus, and I'm, I'm going to probably butcher the language here, but Pilate says, you know, basically, don't you know that I could, I could have you killed? And what does Jesus say to him? Like, you have no such power, you know? Like, you could not do one single thing that my father has not ordained, and God has ordained that I'm going to go to a cross. Mm. Why? Because God ordained the whole nature of our faith. The whole nature of our faith is that God allows suffering in the cross to bring about glory. And, and in our world, we turn that dynamic, dynamic on its head and we say, no, 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 we just we want to search for glory wherever. And if there's suffering, it means God cannot possibly be in it. We're totally forsaken. The world is bad. You know, like we can't endure it. But the nature of our faith is to look for things that are broken and bad and to say, God is using my faithfulness. This is the goal. 
God is able to use my faithfulness through the trial, through the injustice, through the darkness to bring about the salvation of the world, to redeem those that have wronged me, to, to, to be reconciled with those that were my enemies and brought me harm. Like You see the implications of the gospel all over the place in this story. Yeah, even it's interesting that when he says, it was not you sent me here, but God, and then his list is like all of the glory aspects, which is interesting that he doesn't like, you know, double down on all the suffering. Like he's like, no, he's made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all of his house and ruler over all of Egypt. But I mean, that's a real, real good look at that. Like that's a great perspective that he's having because he's not really just holding on to all the suffering. Like, oh, God did this and God did that. He's like, no, all of that stuff led me to this. Yeah. And because of, it's totally worth it. Yeah, he spent 13 years as a slave, and he's only spent at this point eight to nine years in a position of exaltation. And you know, it's like you said, it. he doesn't even bring up the hardship. But, I mean, that's that's the reality. I mean, when you look at the gospel, some of the language that Jesus uses that I just love is, you know, he talks about how on the day when we are brought unto glory, you know, the second coming and, and all sin is wiped away and pain is wiped away and all things are made new. He describes that like, like a woman who has just gone through childbirth, right? You know, if, if, you're, if you're talking to a woman as she's in the height of childbirth, and remember, this is before epidurals and everything else, even though it's still really traumatic. Back then, there was no, <laughs> no help. He's saying at the moment you have a baby in your arms, you totally forget you, you look at a, a woman who's just given birth and she's got a baby in her arms and she's got tears in her eyes and a smile on her face and is just overwhelmed at the miracle of new life and she's forgotten all of her pain right and in a very real sense that's the same it's the same sense in which jesus looks at us it's like he has all new children that are born again and all of the pain you know it's just it doesn't it's it doesn't it doesn't even compare with the joy that he senses in having all of these new children that his pain won for him it, it, it's like forgotten about and i think joseph in this moment is looking i i just i have my brothers back not only do i have benjamin who has no beef with me but i've got the 10 brothers that, that really put me through the ringer, that really hurt me. But look at their hearts now. Look at how they've softened. Like, I've got brothers finally for the first time. They're, they're like, it's like they're made new. And when he sees that and has experienced that, he forgets all of the injustices. Every, it's like, what, what slavery? <laughs> what, what jail time? Like, look at what God has done. And that's... That's the hopeful aspect of this where, you know, like me, I, man, I can find the dark part of a cloud mm. <laughs> really, really easily. The silver lining is, is much harder for me to get my eyes on. But Joseph here is incredible, really incredible. So he's going to take them to Goshen, the best part of Egypt, and the Nile Delta on the northeast side. He says, there I will provide for you. There are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. In other words, before you even spoken a word, before you can apologize, before you can come and show me how sorry you are and grovel at my feet, I'm giving you the best part of the land. I'm taking care of you. I'm giving you life-giving grain. 
I don't want to see your destruction. And it's before they've said a word. And that's that's the reality. Like when you stand before God in heaven, you don't have to sit there and justify yourself because you placed your faith in Christ and he justified you in front of the Father, period. You don't have to plead anything because he pleaded for you and he does not want your destruction. He wants to prepare, you know, he goes to prepare a place for you just like Joseph prepared a place for them. And it says, now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen, hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. There he is again, just weeping machine. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all of his brothers. That's just so amazing. He kissed all of his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. What do you think that talk was about? It's interesting that the Bible doesn't tell us. Yeah. Because that's not, their response isn't the purpose now, which is fascinating. Like we're not even looking for them like to be redeemable, even though we think they are. It's really the actions of Joseph loving his brothers in this crazy, unconditional way that says, I mean, he's probably seen some change in them. At least Judah, he saw that he stepped up, but the rest of them could just still be dirtbags in his mind. Mm-hmm. He doesn't come to them and say, okay, now swear an oath to me. Yeah. You notice that? Huh. He, he sees a heart change, and he says, I'm giving you all this. And now when they talk for the first time, it's not to say, okay, on our end of the deal, we agree to blah, 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 blah. It's just, you just, you just totally forgave us and gave us a massive inheritance and and salvation from the famine, and you've prepared a place in us for us in the best part of Egypt. Like you're you're going above and beyond with the grace, and now we get to talk. <laughs> you know, and that's at that point, it's not to prove yourself anymore. He's already taken care of you. You're already good. Like by decree of the second most powerful voice in Egypt, you got everything. Okay, now let's talk. And it's almost like referring to just as normal conversation because everything's there's no groveling that needs to happen. There's not even an apology that needs to really be said. It's just like, oh, now we can start fresh from here. Yeah. And so you see the implications of the gospel. Like you don't go to the Lord and in light of the gospel, you don't go to the Lord and say, okay, God, if you'll love me, then I'll blah, 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 blah. No, like he's already said, you get the inheritance. You get the best part of the land. I'm preparing a place for you. I've got you covered you are not going to die. I don't want to see you come to destruction. All of it's taken care of, paid for, like I have the authority to make it happen, done, stamped. Now let's talk. And you don't have to come to a figure like that going, you know, it's, <laughs> you, you, you love me? You want the best for me in spite of everything I've just done to you? You've already given it. You've decreed it. It's mine, like as good as done. And now you just want to be in relationship with me and have a talk? That's crazy. That's that's otherworldly. It is interesting. Like, yeah, just relationship now. You don't have to perform. You don't have to prove it. That You don't have to say why. They didn't even say, like, why they did it, which I think yeah. is so funny. Like, I wonder what that conversation, I wished I could hear that conversation. Really? I think it would be boring. You think so? I think it just would just Chit-chat. be catching up, I think. Okay. Because I don't think Joseph would want them yeah, to try to true. justify it. Like, really, their hearts all seem to be like, hey, that was that. And now he's responded like this. So, I mean, they must feel really free after this yeah. in a crazy way. But that's, I mean, you think about the the. Jesus, when when the disciples are are trying to like what you know what's going to happen, what you know, he's constantly saying things like, 
let not your heart be troubled. Mm. Peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. Like, because they're going to have to wrestle with this. You know, people are going to have to say, oh my gosh, like my sin put him on a cross. And Jesus is just repeatedly like, I don't want you to beat yourself up about this. This is my decision. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Like, this is my desire. I want to do this. Do not let your heart be troubled. It's the same language that Joseph is using when he says, don't be distressed. Like, they both have the same heart. I just want you is essentially what Jesus is saying. And far more, with far more purity and profundity than Joseph ever dreamed. And so... It says, when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. So now you see Pharaoh who's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm stepping in. I'm commanding you, Joseph, to make this command. Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Like, I mean, did Joseph already tell them that they have that? So is this just showing correct. Joseph's favor? But what, what Pharaoh is now doing is rather than just saying, hey, you're going to have the best of the land of Goshen, they're getting a foretaste, mm. which, which also in the metaphor is going to be really important. So you have Pharaoh saying to Joseph, I want you to send carts full of stuff. I want to you know, bring a cart for your kids. Bring a cart for your wives. I want you to just overwhelm with all the goodness of Egypt to show them how luxurious living is and how abundant our crops are and all the things that we have to offer down to Egypt. I want you to put it on a cart and I want you to give it to your wives and all of your kids and da-da-da-da-da. And so what's the similarity there? Well, if, if Joseph is preparing a place to spare his family from certain death, and now they have to go back and convince Jacob, you need to leave and come to where Joseph is. I mean, now be thinking of metaphor and Jesus and all that stuff, right? What is it that's going to convince Jacob to pick up and go to Egypt on the word of his sons? <laughs> right? Like, no, they come back with this massive sampling of Egypt. And it's like, that's what convinces Jacob to say, ooh, all right, I'm, I'm with you. I see somebody must have given you a bunch of stuff. So now there's credibility to what you're telling me. And in the same way, let's, I mean, just, just metaphor this thing to death. When we talk about heaven and we say, wouldn't you like to go there and dwell with Jesus, who is this wonderful figure who's far greater than Joseph? You know, one of the blessings that we get is we're, we're called to bring a flavor and a taste of heaven to this world so that people can experience a bit of heaven here. And it's that allure when people say, man, there's something different about these people. There's something different in their carts that I've never experienced. That is more often than not, when you meet somebody who comes to Christ, it's because they saw something in the person that was leading them that's altogether different than what they're used to, right? They have, a, they have a different joy. They have a different freedom. They have a different something about them, which is a gift of heaven. You, you get that straight from heaven. And so 
In this, they load their beast and they go back to the land of Canaan. So it says, verse 21, the sons of Israel did so and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them, he gave a change of clothes. Ding, ding, ding. Remember that from a previous episode? What's that mean for them? Something's a changing. Something's a changing. So their their lot of guilt and shame and and all the the poverty, spiritual poverty that they've had, is now changing. And just like Joseph's circumstance always changes with a change of clothing, now the brother is getting a change of clothes. But to Benjamin, he gave three hundred shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To nice. his father, he sent as follows: ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. (laughs) So even though he believes they're redeemed, even though he's already forgiven them, even though he's promised them good in the land, he knows who they are, and he knows that they're still going to struggle with you know, the sin nature. There could still be some finger pointing on the way home. For sure. Like, you could just see how this could devolve. And he's like, please don't be stupid. Don't ruin this. Like, don't fight. and Don't do anything dumb to one of your brothers. Just, just don't quarrel on the way. <laughs> and so they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him. Now, now I want you to pause here because there's so much that the text does not mention that you have to imagine in this moment. Because they, they finally get home. They got all these carts and donkeys and tons of gifts and treasures and everything else from Egypt. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. Um, he's, he's the ruler uh, over all the land of Egypt. If you're Jacob, what are you thinking? These dumb kids stole stuff again and lying about it. See, you did the same thing I did where you read right past this. What does Jacob get to realize for certain at that moment? You've lied to me for 21 years about my son being dead. You brought me the coat that was stained with blood. You let me believe that he was dead, and now all of a sudden you're standing in front of me saying, Joseph is still alive, and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. Like at that moment, they're busted, and that the text never sits there. Like, isn't that right? I mean, when, isn't that how you would read that? Like Jacob at that point has to know they've they've schemed this whole thing. Yeah, I guess there's still like it doesn't give us a clear prediction of what he believed took place to his son Joseph. Mm-hmm. So he could have trusted them this whole time and not really thought it was a wild beast, and they just happened to interpret seen wrong so i don't know what but do you yeah, mean I guess, like really his coat was stripped away and bloodied and i guess yeah i guess i mean you could no way believe, he i don't think he did but i'm just <laughs> saying he could it, have at this moment at least his i think his suspicions of his sons being responsible is now validated and they have to come clean like at he, he is your son you're still alive but what i love is like the news of the son being alive drowns out all the need for Jacob to to rub it in. Do you notice that? It's like the news of the resurrected son, so hear that, is so utterly wonderful and so utterly glorious to the father that all of their sin is forgotten. 
It's like it's like not even a thing on his mind anymore. It's just so overwhelmingly glorious and such good news that it says his heart became numb because he didn't believe him. Like it's just too much to bear, too much to bear the thought that he might still be alive. And when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and then listen to this, because he's still not believing for sure yet until it says, when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. So in this moment when he sees all the treasures of Egypt, because there's no way his brothers, his sons could have, could have figured that one out. And even if they did, that they would share it with the father. So he just sees wagon upon wagon and donkey after donkey after donkey coming with all the wealth of Egypt. And it says at that moment, his spirit is revived. Mm. Like the resurrection, quote unquote, of the son has revived the heart of the father. And notice what it, then it changes and says, instead of using the name Jacob and Israel said, which is his redemptive name, that God gave him after the wrestling match. It is enough. My son is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And so at that moment, just knowing that Joseph was alive, there's a million other things that could have come up right at that moment. There's a million other distractions that he could have gone to. And he's just like, no, it, that's enough. <laughs> my, my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And all of a sudden, this family that had been shattered, you know, you just see supernaturally being woven together because of Joseph's brilliance and the spirit of God working through him, the brilliance of the way this whole thing was engineered. And it's interesting that the resurrection of the son comes, if the, I mean, maybe this is looking too deep in the name thing, but like you said, it did switch right there in a weird way. Like, he was given that name and he wasn't living in that name. Like he wasn't living in that identity. He went back to Jacob, back to his broken self, back to everything. And now when the son resurrects him, it's not because he deserves it because he's been living out this perfect identity. No, it's what changes him back into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, it makes me wonder if the scripture's intentional in the way it does that. It sure seems that way. That seems weird because I mean, Jacob, two words before. Yeah. And then Israel, right? And, and then continues into the next chapter with Israel. Yeah. I mean, you believe in, in the resurrection of the Son and the glory of God working through this, and you see God's sovereign hand orchestrating and redeeming all of this. And all of a sudden, Jacob sees that. His spirit's revived, and now he's Israel again. It's. But that also, you know, that's it's. I love that the scriptures aren't simplistic in presenting this. You know, once you're redeemed, you're going to be a perfect person for the rest of your life. Like we're still a mess. I mean, that's why Joseph looks at his brothers and says, "Don't quarrel on the way." Yeah. <laughs> you know, even though you've you've shown that you're changed, I know you still struggle with all this stuff. God's not done with you. He's not done with Jacob or Israel, as as we see here. So. Starting in, in chapter 46, so this is going to be a, a good chunk of reading, but hang, hang in the story. It says, So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. So he's worshiping again, and he's worshiping at places where both Isaac and Abraham offered sacrifices. Beersheba was considered the southernmost point of the promised land, and so once you go beyond the borders of Beersheba, it's almost like you're outside of Israel. And so you can imagine Jacob, who's, who's coming up right to the, the border of the land that's been promised, the promised land, 
And it's like, okay, but if we're going to leave here and we're going to go down to Egypt, like the last thing I want to do is, is talk to God and to get his blessing and to make sure that we're good. Because you remember, you remember the last time that Jacob left the promised land? He's okay. heading, running away from Esau, and he's running toward Padam Aram to get a wife, and God stops him and gives him a vision, and there's the ladder to heaven and all of that stuff at Bethel, and, and God promises, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back here. Well, now God, all of a sudden, when he sees Jacob about to leave the land again, comes to him in another vision in the night and says, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am, which is kind of like at your service. Verse 3, it said, he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now that's, there's there's just so much in this. If you if you know Beersheba, Beersheba is where Abraham offered sacrifices not long after Isaac was born. And so when you see God's faithfulness and giving Abraham a son in Genesis chapter 21, it's not far long where where Abraham is offering sacrifices at Beersheba. When Isaac faced the massive famine of his day in Genesis 26 and God proved faithful and blew up his wealth and he just became extraordinarily wealthy, in Genesis 26, that's when Isaac is offering sacrifices at Beersheba. And now Jacob goes and he offers sacrifices at Beersheba and it's like saying, okay, you are being faithful to me in the same way that you came through in your promise to Abraham and you came through in your promise to Isaac to bring about life when life seemed impossible. And now you've brought my Joseph back to me and I will offer sacrifices there. And God gives this promise. He says, I'm going down with you to Egypt and I will bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. What he's saying is you're going to die, but your son that you thought was lost is going to be the one whose fingers shut your eyes when you die. And so the promise there is you'll never lose him again so long as you live. He will be with you for the remainder of your life, and you will be brought up again into the promised land. And what's interesting about this, and I don't, I don't know that we have much time to go further in this chapter, because I want to park here for a moment, because one of the things that I find interesting is God has already promised Abraham that they're going to have 400 years of, of mistreatment and oppression and slavery in a foreign country. He didn't name it as Egypt. But if you're Jacob and you heard your grandfather talk about this, you know, that your descendants are going to be enslaved somewhere, you have to be thinking, I'm kind of nervous to go into a foreign land because that's where we're supposed to be enslaved. And you have God who comes and says, go. Go down there. I'm going with you. And we know what happens. And yet Jacob goes with God's blessing, and he says, go down to Egypt. God knows what's going to happen. Why does he do that? Now, I was thinking about this. He says, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. And I was reading a commentary. It's really, really great commentary from a really brilliant guy. But when they're in Egypt, the Egyptians so detest foreigners, especially Canaanites, that they would not intermingle with them. 
And so when God plucks up his people, you know, there's 70 or so people that he's going to take from the land of Canaan with this tribe of Jacob, and he's going to transplant them down to Egypt, where they're going to grow from a group of 70 to 2 million people over 400 years, which means you're, every generation your population is doubling. It's doable. But you're going to grow massively, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. And the reality is if you look at all the generations, you know, the Ishmaelites and all the people that came from out of Abraham's lines and out of Isaac's lines, you know, the Edomites and everything else, they're all intermarrying. They're assimilating into all these other cultures just like nothing, you know. Even Jacob, Judah is, you know, taken to the Canaanites. People, There's going to be people who come down with Canaanite wives from from Israel going down to Egypt, they would have absolutely assimilated into the into that Canaanite culture had they been allowed to stay there. Hmm. And so what God is doing, he says, I'm going to go down with you to Egypt where I will make you into a great nation. And this is, again, the sovereignty of God who takes his people and plucks them and puts them in a land where they don't even have an option to assimilate into a wicked culture. Because the wicked culture won't have them, you know? And over the course of these 400 years, truly, God, it, they become this massive, massive nation. And it's almost like, you know, an incubator where God is creating a nation that's going to be kept from assimilating into all these crazy things because the culture won't have them. To where he's like, okay, now I've got 2 million people. They're still circumcising their kids. They're, they don't have a definite identity. The law of Moses hasn't come yet. Now let me give you your birth certificate, <laughs> you know, through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. I'm going to give you all your national identity. I'm going to walk with you into the promised land, and I'm going to basically transplant an entire nation, which is never, like, we've never seen this before in history or since, I don't think. But we're going to transplant an entire nation all at once without having been polluted with all this other mythology, because the Egyptians simply wouldn't have them. And I love that. You know, one of the things that it makes me think, of, because the Babylonian exile accomplishes the same thing, where the Jews are going to be hated all over the world and they have their own unique cultures. I mean, you think about the Jewish people throughout history, everywhere they go, they've been targeted and harassed and persecuted and, you know, through the Inquisition, the, the Babylonian exile, the Roman persecution... And it's because every society where they have gone has despised them and has not allowed them to assimilate into their culture in part, and partly because they're defensive of protecting their culture, that they've sustained as a people for so long without having been assimilated away. Um, like, if you asked me who my people were 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago, <laughs> It, it your guess is probably as good as mine. I can maybe trace back three, four, five generations. But God, in allowing the persecution of the Jews, you know, when he says, I will be with you. Well, that's we when we think of I will be with you, can you remember other parts in the story of Joseph where it says, and God was with him? It's all the bad parts. It's all the bad parts. Oh, you sold into slavery, and God was with him. Oh, you're down in the prison, and God was with him. Hey, Jacob, you can go down to Egypt. I will be with you. 
Like it's in the bad parts that God is forging his people into Mm. these incredible people, nations. And there's something about us like we don't want to go into the bad parts because I'll tell you like just personal commentary, personal opinion at this moment. When I look at our country, I see us going to Egypt, man. Our country is a dumpster fire. It's a a trash heap. The morality is collapsing. Liberties, I feel like, are withering away. Like when I when I look and imagine where our country will be without miraculous intervention with God, I'm not super hopeful on the political landscape or the geopolitical landscape. But I look at a passage like this and I see God saying, hey, this is going to have to purify the church because to be a Christian, it's going to get really uncomfortable in the next years and decades in this country, if it continues on its path, it's going to get really hard. And you might be in slavery, and you might be in the pit, or you might be down in Egypt, but guess what? I'm with you. And guess what God does in those moments? He turns Joseph from a spoiled brat into the kind of guy that can look at his enemies and say, I forgive you, and I will use everything in my power to bless you. It's, it's a nation that comes out having not been polluted by all the garbage because the world wants nothing to do with you people. That, to me, is it's an upside-down view of hope, you know? Because I think, you know, like I said, barring some supernatural intervention, I think that's our future. I feel like that's the future for my kids. I don't see our country moving in a positive direction, and it feels like it's decaying, And the acceleration into decay is ever, ever accelerating. Maybe it's just me. (laughs) But here's the hope. I will be with you. I will be with you. And what does Jesus say before he ascends into heaven in the Great Commission? Behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And if that means that we have to go through seasons of suffering, for God to accomplish his far greater purposes of beauty that we can't see or foretell at this point, then God give me the faith to walk into a season of suffering knowing that you are going to do something with it. You never waste the suffering of your people. But give us the imagination of faith to believe that as we walk faithfully into it, whatever may come, that you are operating in a way that is ultimately going to bring about your glory And that someday, like Joseph, we might be able to say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's where we have to hang our hats when we walk into seasons like like we're walking into, where it's like, what is going on with our country? What's going on with our communities and uh, the nation's morality? Like It can be really troubling if you divorce it all from the sovereignty of God. Yeah, I've never thought about how the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham was actually the cause of their suffering and slavery. Mm-hmm. And God's pretty clear, like, which is shocking to, like, I don't like that necessarily. Mm-hmm. But like the fulfillment of the promise also is the cause of suffering because that shows us that suffering does lead to glory event- in the eventual. That's how he set up all of this so we can't run from the suffering. Yeah, it's I mean, wild. It's, it's the cross. Yeah. You know, it is the cross that gives us the hope of a kingdom that can't be shaken. And so we serve a God who transforms suffering. He's a master at it, of taking the dark seasons, whether they're major geopolitical kingdom-shaking events 
or whether they're the little moments in our lives or the, the, the really tragic moments or the bad news or the, the, the struggles of everyday life that we face. Our God is a master at transforming suffering into glory. He doesn't always give us a glimpse into how he's going to do it. More often than not, he doesn't. But at the end of the day, we're given the promise that like Joseph, we'll be able to say, oh, you know, this world meant it for evil. The, the, the culture meant it for evil. And yet God pulled a jujitsu move, threw it on its back, and used it to advance his glory and our good. And that's our hope. And in that, we're 10 foot tall and bulletproof, more than conquerors, even in our suffering. That's the upside-down nature of the gospel. So, Sam, relax. (laughs) God is in control. Amen? Amen. I hope that was a blessing to you. Uh, It's been a lot of fun to walk through the life of Joseph, and next week we will pick up and continue kind of this happy ending that actually leads into a little bit of folly in Joseph's weak point in his life. Uh, But we will pick up on that next week on the Out of Water podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Like and subscribe to our podcast. Share with a friend. Uh, Do all that good stuff to help us out. We really, really enjoy producing this for you and want as many ears to hear it as possible. Have a great week. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.